You're listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome, everyone, to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I'm Carlos Noche, and I'm joined by my very cool Canadian podcast partner, Lisa Schneer. How are you doing, Lisa? It is very cool here. (laughs) It is that time of year. It's all good through the holidays. It's afterwards that you can get tired of it. Today, folks, we're really excited about today's topic because we're talking about the power of storytelling, one of those great skills that every great communicator needs to have. And our guest today will share with us how anyone can be a great storyteller if they just learn the science behind it. And to help us out with this topic today, we have Karen Eber, who's author, keynote and TED speaker, owner-in-chief, executive storyteller, I think I added that, chief storyteller of the Eber Leadership Group. Karen helps companies build healthy leaders, teams, and culture one story at a time. And Karen, thank you so much for your time today and welcome to the show. I'm delighted to be here. I also like the new title. I'm going to keep it. Chief Executive Storyteller. You know, it's a little elevated. I get it. It's all good. Words matter. I like it. I like it. All right. So before we get jump in the topic of the day, Karen, we love to start by getting to know you a little bit better. What is something that you're passionate about that those that only know you through work might be surprised to know about you? I play the flute and the piccolo in a community band, not at the same time, mostly the piccolo. So I started in elementary school and have played all the way through high school and college, and I still play. So it's a wonderful yin to the yang of the work that I do, and it's creative. And what I love about the piccolo in particular is you kind of sit on top of the sound of the band, and it's like sprinkles on ice cream, which is very fun to be that light, little, playful thing on top. That is super cool. And I've never heard it described as that, but you're right. It is like the sprinkles on the cake. That is amazing. I mean, apart from your musical prowess, you also have done a lot of other things in your career, including recently releasing your book, The Perfect Story. Tell us a little bit about the journey that brought you to here, because obviously the, you were people in culture and talent for years. You worked with Fortune 500 companies, and now you've written a book and released a book alongside all of your other accomplishments. So tell us a bit about the journey. I like to say I've sat on both sides of the desk. So for 20 years, I worked in corporate roles as a head of culture and a chief learning officer in a business at General Electric and a head of leadership development in a business in Deloitte and have been always in this place of how I'm creating great workplaces for people and building great leaders. And on this other side of the desk, I've opened Eber Leadership Group that helps build leaders, teams, and culture one story at a time. I did a TED Talk in 2020-ish that ended up on TED.com and just exploded, which led to a book deal, which led to the book in your hands that is, as you're thinking of the way people show up or the way they communicate, how do you use stories to be more dynamic and helping impact those decisions? And so that came out this year, and I'm so thrilled to help people recognize that anyone can be a great storyteller. That is super cool. And so... I guess like one of the questions is like, how did you discover that people and leadership and talent development was your forte? Like what really led you to understanding that's what you wanted to do with your career before, of course, becoming an author? I have always been curious about what motivates behavior. 
So even in my undergraduate, I studied psychology. And then in graduate, I studied instructional design and performance consulting. So how are you bringing out the best of people? And what are the patterns behind the way we work? And what are the common mistakes? And what are the things that look great? And so I just kept digging more and more into it, which very quickly leads to who are the people leading your organization? Who are those middle managers that are either making the day-to-day of the employee great or suck? And how do you make all of that better? And I realized there's so much that can be done and it just kept deepening and deepening from there. So let's jump into this thing called storytelling. Now, I'm a big believer in storytelling. I think the best salespeople, the best communicators, all spin a great yarn, right? They make you really, you know, be feel like, emotionally a part of it. So break down a story for me. What makes a great story and makes it something that people kind of pulls people in? There's so many layers to what is going on. Most importantly, what's making a great story is it's making your brain sit up and pay attention. And it's telling you as the listener that you were like a main character in the story. So even if you've never had this experience, you're able to see, hear, feel, experience, think the things that are being described, which is so great in sales because You can have that moment where you're connecting someone to the higher aspiration of what they want to buy, right? They're not just buying a product or a service. They're buying the outcome of that. And stories allow for us to feel those moments, feel those things as though they are true. And that brings us closer to ultimately deciding. What stories are doing is they are connecting us to the emotion of the experiences and we decide through emotions. And so it is a really powerful way to hook into that influence and help people make decisions differently. So, I mean, I've done this keynote at SKOs around storytelling and although I'm I'm not a professional, but one of the things I, you know, I go back to is, I mean, you think back to, you know, when we're just cavemen sitting in a cave, the way we shared experiences were through storytelling. And then I fast forward to today in being a more effective salesperson. Hey, you know, we need to create stories that are relatable to the person. So when you think about storytelling and structure, is there a framework or a structure to it that really makes it resonate, especially when you think about your audience? So there's so many pieces that are going to make it resonate. The first is we have all sat in boring meetings or we have been on the receiving end of a really bad sales pitch where someone is just talking at us and it's almost like we don't need to be there. And what's happening is it's just words and we're hearing or we're reading them or processing them, but we're not connecting with them in any way. And there's a couple reasons. It's usually because there's not any structure to it. It's just a listing of facts or information, and it's not connecting to our emotions. What you want to think about anytime you're telling a story is starting first with your audience. Who is it that you're talking to? Think of the internal feeling you want to create that you want them to think or feel. Think of the action you want them to take externally of what you want them to know or do and write a sentence for each. Think about what is their mindset today and write a sentence for that and what might be an obstacle. Because before you choose your story or even if you know the story you want to tell, you've got to get really clear on who are you telling that to. Otherwise, you are just like the uncle at the holiday table that is like telling the story on a loop that everyone can recite because he tells it over and over, but he's telling that for him and not for you. So first part, start there. Because even if you know the story you want to tell and you've told it before, You haven't told it to the audience in front of you, and you want to make sure you are really making it meaningful for them. And those questions help you just get centered on who they are. From there, once you pick an idea, once you know the story you want to tell, 
you can frame out a basic storytelling model. I love a four-part one that is the context, conflict, outcome, takeaway. There are others. There are things like the hero's journey or Pixar storytelling model, which are amazing if you're crafting fiction or writing a novel, but you're trying to land an idea in a meeting and you need a structure that's flexible. So four sentences, again, you're building the skeleton, write out a sentence for the context. What's the setting and really why should your audience even care? What's the conflict? The moment where something happens and things have to be resolved. It could be person to person or person in between themselves, but there's something that needs resolution. The outcome, what happens as a result of the conflict and the takeaway, which is what do you want the audience coming away with? And that is really important because you connect that takeaway idea to what you said you wanted your audience to know, think, feel, or do. You should be able to find a connection where you have done that through the story and you're ensuring that you're not only telling a story that someone can follow, but that it's meaningful for your audience. You mentioned your education, and I couldn't let this go. You went to that amazing Florida State University. And how did your education there kind of help you do what you do today? I am one of the rare people that I actually do work in what I studied. First, I was in the Marching Chiefs, and we did face the circus. So I would watch people do these flips and stuff while I was at practice. I'd, I'd like watch that every day, four to six. I did not get to be in the circus, though. <laughs> so I did study psychology and what motivates human behavior, what goes into thinking and decision making and, and all the things that we face. And then I did take that into instructional design and performance consulting of like, how do you apply psychology towards work and make an impact there? And so I've continued to build on that, especially as I got into roles as head of culture. And even now in the work that I'm doing, building the leaders teams and, and storytelling, it's really all about how are you taking these things to connect with people and create understanding? And so there are flavors of what I studied just a few years ago. Just a little background about me. So most of our listeners know I'm on the East Coast of Canada in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And we have a very natural storytelling capability here in the Maritimes. And having grown up, my father and my uncle's well, fishermen, fishing community that I grew up in and, and the stories that they would tell from growing up at that time and in that place and, you know, not having a lot of money and being seven kids. And to me, there's a certain natural element to storytelling. But I like what we said at the top of the show where you told us that anyone can become a good storyteller if they understand the science behind it. And I know you have a ton of free resources on your blog for people. And one of them is a free download called The Top Six Storytelling Mistakes. So a two-part question. How do you turn a person who's not a natural storyteller into a good storyteller? And what are some of those top mistakes that people make? So starting with the first one of like what makes a great story, what are choices you can make? I believe there are certain ways your brain responds to information or communications or stories that are important to understand and factor into choices you make in your stories. And so I call these the five factory settings of the brain. They're almost like five principles of storytelling. So I'll give you one as an example, because they're all based in science and they become considerations for the story. The first is your brain is lazy. And if you think about the brain as almost the broker for the body, the brain's number one goal is to keep you alive. And part of that is it's a regulator of calories. So there are some non-negotiable calories to keep your body functioning, run systems and stuff like those are always allocated. You can't take from that pool. 
But there are these optional calories that go to attention and focus and those things that, you know, those moments where if we're really tired, it's much harder to do. If we're hungry, it's much harder to do. And what is happening when you're telling a story is your brain is almost making this decision of, is this worth the calorie spend? Are you giving me enough details? Are you helping me feel like I'm in the story? Are you making me feel engaged with my senses? And so one of the best things you can always do is remember anytime you're communicating or presenting, the brain is lazy. I am fighting this. So how do I make sure I am building a story that is worthy of their attention, that is putting in these things that are going to make it pay attention? So I've got five of these. We can touch on some of the others if helpful. But they then become these choices that when you're building a story, you ask yourself, how do I make sure the brain isn't lazy here? How do I put in an unexpected event so the brain like hits a speed bump and goes, huh, and has to spend some calories because that is when it's going to pay attention, engage, and remember. When you drift off, when someone's talking because it's boring, or you come home from a long day and you turn on the show you've seen so many times because you don't want to think, that's your brain having a lazy moment. You know, we're not meant to be high focus all day, every day. It's meant to ebb and flow. And there are ways we can play with that in a story. So that's the first part. And remind me of the second part of the question. Oh, the uh, some of the top mistakes you see people make um, that that could, I mean, not necessarily completely sabotage a story, but some of the ones that people struggle with. The first is that we're telling the story we love to tell and not the one the audience needs to hear. We all have stories that we love for some reason, like maybe it's a personal experience we've had, or maybe we told it once and it just totally rocked, but it doesn't work in another setting. But if you're telling the story you want to tell, you're risking it not being meaningful for the audience, like you're the uncle at the holiday table again. So the best thing is to always focus first on your audience and what is it that you're trying to have them do, because that's where you're going to make sure your story is meaningful and not just wasted words. Second biggest one is where people don't prepare any type of structure for the story. And it doesn't have to be lengthy. You can use the context, conflict, outcome, takeaway, real time as a way to tell your story. But if this is, you know, a sales meeting and you are getting ready for it, put put a little bit of practice into it and build a structure because it's going to help you tell a tighter story. It's going to organize it better in your brain and make it easier for you to tell. And it's going to make it so much easier for the audience to hear. So those are a couple that happen really frequently when we just get focused and we get excited and we tell what we want, but it's not going to land the way that we want it to. And so one thing that comes to mind, you're mentioning about being in a sales meeting, and of course, we're tying this back to a bit of how being a good storyteller helps you to be a better salesperson. And another personal experience I had, I was joining a startup, this was a number of years ago now, and I met with Everyone but the janitor had felt like by the time I got through the interview process. The only person who could tell me why this company was started and why it existed was the CEO. He was the only one who told me the story. So in Carlos and I's world, and I'm sure you encounter this all the time as well, is like people only describing features and functionality of technology and not going back to that Why did this ever come to be? Why does this company exist? What problem did you see that went, I can solve that? And so is that because the salespeople are having that lazy brain moment that they're like, I can read this list of features and functionality? Or do you think it's because we're not very good at teaching them the story? 
I think there's a little bit of we want to demonstrate our expertise. And so we just want to share it all because we know people want to buy from someone that we trust. And we assume if I can demonstrate to you, I have all this expertise, you're going to trust me and the product or the service. But that's not dynamic enough. So I think of it this way. I really enjoy Sting. I have been a fan for years since college. Right after I graduated, he was on tour and I was like, I am going to go see him in concert. This is going to be amazing. I go to the concert. It had rained all day. I'm sitting on a trash bag because the lawn is all wet because I was still young enough to sit in the lawn. Like, I don't do that anymore. So he comes out and he goes, hello, plays his songs, whole set, ends the show. Good night, leaves. That's it. The music was amazing. It's Sting. I mean, he's an amazing musician. But I wanted to hear a story behind the music. And granted, he had been performing for many years already at this point. He had probably told these stories. He also tends to be very straight in his performances and not do that. But I wanted to hear something about it or what he did that day or something, because you want to feel like you're getting something a little bit special in that moment. And it's the same thing in a sales conversation. If you share any of those things you described, or challenges that this has helped solve for other potential customers or clients. Like you're getting the story behind the song and people love that because what happened if Sting had told you the story or had told me the story about that song? Anytime I heard, you know, let's say it was Roxanne, anytime I heard Roxanne, I would probably tell everyone around me the song that he said because I felt a connection to it in that moment. You need the way to connect to it. And it is remembering it's not the listing of facts that's going to get there at least start with the story and then get to the listing of facts because then you'll have that hook and people will be more engaged. Yeah, Karen, along those lines, it's a saying, and people will remember how you make them feel much longer than anything you say. So, which leads me to my next question. How important is tone, delivery, even practicing the story? You ever hear people, they're kind of hemming and hawing as they're going through a story and it's almost like, are you making this up as you're going along? Or are you just trying to remember? So how important is tone delivery and all that side of it? Yeah, I want to talk about it on both sides because it is and it isn't. So let's start with what it isn't to take pressure off of people. I think there's this thought that we have to be the most articulate, smooth, unflubbed, no verbal stumbles or pauses storyteller. And that's not real life. I actually recorded in another podcast that I heard a clip of later and I made up a word in it. I didn't even know this until I heard the clip later. I'm like, what is this word? That doesn't even exist. Didn't even know I did it. But real life, it's totally fine. I mean, they chose that clip. It couldn't have been that awful. And so I don't want people thinking, I can't be human. You can be human, but what you can't do is not put any thought into it and not have any preparation. Your pace, your pause, your inflection, they are all characters in the story perhaps pause more than anything. Because I will use pause when I'm telling a story. I will speed up as I'm getting to that unexpected moment or that idea that I want to land. I'll speed up in what I'm saying and I'll use my voice and inflection and get there bigger, bigger, faster. And then you pause and you let the idea land. And what's happening when you pause is your brain catches up and it repeats what's said. Don't do the, let me say that again. You pull them out of it. Let their brain feel it. Let it settle because the pause is where the brain almost hits that speed bump and goes, wait, what? Find the big points that you want to land. Try to make them succinct. Try to make them pithy if you can. Use increased pace, use inflection, but most importantly, use pause because it lets our brains catch up and really hear what's being said. 
What about timing? When's the best times to use stories in business, for example? Let's say, I, you know, let's categorize it or in a sales campaign or, you know, engagement in someone in a professional manner. I would rather answer when is the time not to tell a story because I find that we're questioning like when is the right time to tell a story and really people don't tell stories enough. The places to avoid a story is when you are risk of manipulating someone. So manipulation comes in when we are intentionally withholding information or sharing it in this way that people sniff out manipulation. You feel like, oh, I'm being manipulated. They're not giving me the real story. And the moment that happens, that's it. We don't trust. So if there's a update, a change, a regulation, a policy, you know, this isn't sales specific, but people, many people are facing a moment where they're being asked to return to work in offices. And I've had companies come to me and say, what story should I tell? And I'm like, none. Treat people like adults. Give them the update. Don't try to spin it in a story because people will sense that and not trust it. That's the moment not to tell a story. The rest of the time, it is welcome. It is something that is going to make a difference. It's funny you bring up that example because I I think, you know, as I go to these different clients, and Lisa's the same, you know, a lot of them are trying to get people back into the workplace and some of the other folks, well, man, I, I would be in the office five days a week when it was my time. And you go, I get it because I was there too. But that doesn't resonate to these folks. And the fact that you had to do it just makes it sound old and old fashioned. That story that you're telling about yourself does not really resonate to them, the listener. So you got to create a reason or a purpose for them to be in the office. Yeah, I mean, that's an example of the story that you want to tell, right? Back in my day, well, that's great for you, but now you're just talking at someone. You're not connecting them to it. All right, I got one more thing, because as you were talking, we all know people that are, let's call them great storytellers, but when you get to know them, you go, man, you've told that story three times, and that fish has only gotten bigger. Or, I was at the same party. Really? I don't remember that happening. So what happens to these folks that kind of uh, exaggerate to be the kind on some of their stories? What are your thoughts on that? Exaggeration. There's a little bit of a grace, right? You know, so sometimes the fish keeps getting bigger. It's because there's like this really intense moment. And so we're excited and we lean into the moment perhaps too much. There is a point where you cross the line and people can sniff it. And they're like, no, that I don't feel like you're being truthful. We've all probably maybe read a publication or heard somebody speak where we don't believe them and you just lose any trust and it's completely skewed that way. And you don't want to do that. You know, most of the time, those exaggerations are for you and they're not for anybody else. And so avoid them. Anything like that feels like manipulation. And the moment we sniff that out is when that's it. You don't really come back from that. You don't suddenly think like, oh, I now trust them. That was just a mistake or a misunderstanding. It's like, no, they said something really, you view them as shady and that's it. It's marked that way in your brain and very hard to come back from. Yeah, one that comes to mind that's a little more extreme than the ask to go back to the office one is when there's major leadership changes at companies and everybody's like, oh, don't be nervous. Don't be nervous. It's fine. Everything's fine. And it's it's not to say that we want people to live in fear, but at the same time, going back to being like a transparent, trustworthy leader, you know, understanding that people are going to be nervous when those big changes happen and that you shouldn't try to manipulate because the next thing you know, everybody's looking for another job. Yeah, I think it's better just to acknowledge emotions. You know, there's something really interesting that happens with leaders of there's this fear to touch on emotions in any way, you know, fear to have a conversation that 
might get emotional. And no, we don't bring emotions into work, right? There's this very strong belief. However, emotions are at the heart of our decision making. Like we are not devoid of emotion. And I feel like there's still a way to use emotion and be professional. It's better in situations like this to acknowledge we're going through changes. This can be unsettling. We understand, not the please don't do that, we heard you because nobody believes we've been hurt, but there's a difference between leaning into emotions and not. So the commercials on television in North America for the SPCA, so the Preventative Cruel Treatment of Animals, right? Really heavy Sarah McLaughlin ballad playing while the camera pans and puppies are trembling and kittens have like red watery eyes. And you were like, oh, my heart leans into emotion hard, hard. But they're not manipulating because it's very clear what they're trying to do. They are trying to raise awareness and raise funding. There's a difference with that versus manipulating where you are just hurting and saying things that feel unfactual. That said, there's a line that, you know, I see those commercials come on and I'm like, change the channel, mute the TV, not for me. Same. <laughs> like, I don't need to cry right now. So I'm curious because you're you're on the road, you're doing all these amazing keynotes and you're meeting all kinds of people and you're teaching them about storytelling. Do you have a favorite story that you've heard along your travels that you keep coming back to because of the way it was told or the content or or something I don't, for me on my stuff, I don't believe in giving the same keynote over and over because I want to start first with who that audience is and what I'm trying to do. And so there's certain stories that feel really right for a moment and that audience and the connection. And then there are some that it's like, I'm done with that. I'm never telling this story again. But no, I don't have a favorite. It's very much driven for me by who I'm speaking with and what feels right in that moment. So like that sting story, I don't really tell, but it felt right in the moment. So let's use it. It can help illustrate a point. And then so second part of that being... Did you have a favorite story growing up? Did you have a favorite childhood author or someone that really resonated with you? There is this author by the name of Sid Hoff who wrote these stories, Amy's Dinosaur, I think. And so he kind of bridged. These were children picture books with like a sentence, very simple kindergarten, grade one reading. They were very simple books about treating people nicely and actually being kind to the environment and stuff. I learned to read very young and I read all of this stuff and somehow ended up with all of his books. And he was a client of my father's. My father was in banking. He came into his office. And so my dad brought the books. I didn't know this. And he autographed a book to me to the little Eber. And like, so I loved that because it was like, this author knows who I am. That's amazing. And I recently went online and saw his family is like looking for stories about him. So I want to send a photo of it and uh, send them that. That's awesome. We've all seen articles recently talking about how human concentration levels are decreasing from generation to generation. I think a goldfish has got our latest generation beat by one article. How is that affecting storytelling? There have definitely been shifts and I've seen studies that after the, or because of the pandemic, I feel like attention spans, I think we're 15 minutes and now it's down to like six. And I feel like that's even worse in social media because we're all scrolling and in a matter of seconds, you're deciding whether you go or not. That said, some of my favorite comedians are telling 15 minute stories and you are there every step of the way. So I feel like, yes, attention spans do matter. And, and so it means right away, you have to make sure the brain isn't lazy. You have to start in a creative way. So think about a sales meeting. If you walk in, hi, I'm Karen Eber. I'm so happy to be here with you today. Thank you so much for taking the time. Already they're not listening. 
because you're just filler words and the brain's like, no, blah, blah, you know, Charlie Brown's teacher. Yet we all do that. We almost feel like we need permission and to set the tone. If you started right off with a story, you're going to catch their attention right away. And then you can get to who you are and what you do. You know, when I do keynotes, I don't do introductions. I jump in. I start with a story right away. And then I come back and I will share who I am and why I'm talking to them and what we're going to do. It's a difference than coming and saying filler words that don't mean anything. And that's true for any communication, any situation and being thoughtful of think about the brain is lazy. How do I get their attention and how do I make sure that I'm keeping it throughout the discussion? So it's interesting you talked about the meeting thing. It's like, you know, sometimes we fall into the trap, but the other part of it is the audience falls into this lazy trap. You come in and they're on their laptops and they're on their phones and you kind of just want to break them out of it. And I do agree, a great story is a great attention puller into it, but it's easier to do in person because I can walk around the room and kind of look at people versus in a virtual like environment like Zoom or something. So you got to put the effort in. So I think that's a great point. I'm going to pivot on you. So writing a book is something I've always dreamt about doing. Of course, I have no skills or nothing to write about. But besides that, I'm all in. And the fact that you did one, can you tell us about your journey? Like, how how was that? I mean, did you feel like you always had a book in you or, wow, it just came out? The writing part was the easiest part. You know, at the point I did my TED Talk, I had been talking about storytelling as a part of leadership for a while. When the talk went on TED, I very fortunately had literary agents come knock on my door within a week, which is you know, normal. You have to query. So that was amazing. And in those discussions, they said, you know, do you have ideas for a book? Because the talk had hit a million views you know, within a week. And I said, actually, I do. I had been playing with an outline, not really with the I'm writing a book mindset, but it was just, I don't know, pandemic, like playing with what might this be? And so we then started to build a proposal, which is outline of the book, a few sample chapters and really the business plan for it. And it stayed pretty much the same. I flipped the order of one of the chapters to make it flow better. But the ideas behind it came together pretty quickly. There were one or two chapters that took a little bit longer. There's the book is really four parts. And the first part is the science of storytelling. And I wanted to tell the science in a way that didn't feel like lab coat and beaker and heavy. I wanted it to be relatable. But that part was fairly quick. I wrote it in about six months. The hard part is the publishing. It's a very long cycle. Uh, I submitted it September 2022 and I published October 2023. So it's a very long cycle of marketing and discussions and plugging into their timeline and all of that. that um, that a very long sales cycle is hard. The suspense, the build up. <laughs> well, we feel like also, how do I keep talking about this in a way that's going to be interesting for people that makes them be intrigued and not mute me? Because like, there she goes again with her book. Well, and interesting you bring that up because this is a bit of a strange segue, but with the evolving world of technology and the rise of AI and chat GPT and machine learning and all of these tools that can help you to get like gather up content, create content pieces. Like we just heard about one yesterday that would take this podcast and cut it up into like 10 different LinkedIn posts and put a different tone on each one. How are you seeing that kind of technology evolve the way that storytelling is happening? And is it a good thing? I find it's very helpful to get you to the starting line. Say you have a sales meeting in two weeks and you're really struggling with like, what is the 
angle? What is the story I want to tell? Go into ChatGPT and type, give me 27 potential stories for what, you know, describe the situation. You're going to get a lot of trash back, but it's going to prompt your thinking. It's not that it's going to give you the answer. It's that it's giving you something to react to that you're like, no, oh, I would never say, no, I think about it this way. And then you get it. You know, I do a lot of articles. And so I will often use it to generate ideas of like, give me, you know, 17 search engine optimized article titles for an article on whatever. And 16 of them are terrible. And one of them is okay. And then I can build on it. So I find that sometimes starting with a blank sheet of paper can be really hard and stories can help with that. It's a great thesaurus. If you want to use a different metaphor, if you want to make sure that you are changing, you know, not being repetitive or something, it's great for things like that. I don't recommend it for writing a story or generating. I think, you know, there's still, you can bring so much goodness into it. You can bring in the personal aspect and random stories and talking about the circus at (laughs) college that ChatGPT can't do. And that's why I think it still needs to sit with you, but use it for sure anytime you're feeling stuck or slow to get ideas or more importantly, to give you something to react to. Yeah, we've noticed in particular when it comes to brevity, being able to get your point across without writing a whole novel, especially when you're thinking about prospecting and sales, like that there's there's a lot of different technologies out there that will help you take that point and get it more succinct, I guess. (laughs) I will tell you, though, I used it. So when I was reaching out for blurbs for the book, one of them was Adam Grant. And so it's a very lengthy process, many months out. And it was coming up on the deadline when I needed it. And I had to send him a reminder. And so I went to ChatGPT because these are really awkward messages to write. Like, how do you, you know, you have to make an ask and a reminder. So I went to ChatGPT and I said, you know, how do I do this? And it was the worst email. It was like, Hey, blurb maestro, uh, just wanted to let you know that it's time for the blurb. And, you know, like it was like so like you would never send this. But I wrote the reminder and I said, I, I want to let you know it's coming up. And I put what I needed. And I said, by the way, these emails are awkward to write. So I went to ChatGPT for guidance on what to say. And it said I should call you blurb maestro. So I used it as this icebreaker, which ended up being this hilarious back and forth between us to which he sent it and signed a blurb maestro. And so like it can help in some awkward ways of like, I would have never sent the email it gave me, but it did give me something clever that to take this, what felt like an awkward, like, hi, me again made that a lot easier and actually made it fun. That's a really good point. I mean, and sometimes that's that is all you need is the prompt and what that icebreaker could be. Yeah, I love that. So changing direction a little bit here, love to ask people this question, particularly when they ultimately have found the success that you've found in your life. And congratulations on all of that. What would be looking back could be personal or business related. One of the bigger mistakes that you felt like you made that if you could go back in time, you would have done a little differently. I think like anything, I wish I closed doors softly. So each moment in life when you realize, yeah, this no longer serves me, I need to move on. I stayed a beat too long. And there's probably a reason for that. And that extra moment is what you know helped you move along. But I think whenever you're facing something and you're like, should I or shouldn't I? I find most people stay like just a moment too long and you wish you had moved on sooner. And I wish that I could have recognized that because instead, you know, you don't close the door softly, you end up slamming it. You're like, never again, I'm done. And so I wish that. But, you know, even if I told the younger me, she would be like, okay, sure. And then not pay attention. So 
I think that's great advice for the listeners because we always want the listeners to take away. I mean, you've given us many action items today that people can apply daily in their work. And one of the reasons we ask that question is because is there something that you they could do differently. And I think that's really good advice, especially now. Like we do see people job hopping more than ever. We see people starting their own thing. The gig economy is real. So you never know. I'm a big proponent of that as well, as far as like you never know when your network is going to be there to help you and to launch your business. And so keeping those relationships, closing those doors softly, as you say, it's very important. Last question of the day, we call it Acceleration Insights. Karen, what might be that one piece of advice, be it business or personal, that you would share with our audience to help them achieve the same level of success you've achieved? I'll tell you the number one thing I think about every single day. It sounds super basic, but it is so true. Prioritize sleep. The days where I am feeling insecure, frustrated, tired, having a hard client interaction, dealing with something uncomfortable, I often haven't slept enough. The days where I'm rested, it removes so much of that. And especially if you're doing the gig economy, whatever you're working on in yourself is just front and center in your business and what you're doing. And so the more that we can practice the wellness of the sleeping and movement and what we eat and drink and all that. So every day I am like vigilant about when I go to sleep and trying to get sleep and making sure that I can get what I want. I'm laughing on the inside because I got up at 3.30. I didn't mean to get up at 3.30, but it just, yeah, I was up. It was time to go. I got that aura ring, and one of the things I got it for is to track my sleep. I was laughing, too, because I know Carlos struggles with prioritizing sleep. But yeah, I will say, and we are in no way affiliated with this app, but one thing that I found interesting lately is the sleep stories on the Calm app helping to like wind down. Yeah. I've learned more about trains than I ever needed to know. <laughs> but it's like, it's interesting because so I did like two or three Black Fridays ago, I did a whole like lifetime subscription on Calm. It's for me, it has to be a nonfiction story. It can't be, I mean, it has to be a fiction story. It can't be nonfiction. It can't be like too involved. It can't be touring an area. It needs to be like a mindless fairy tale and the process of it. And it needs to be 40 minutes because then 15 minutes in, I can go to sleep. But I'm a big proponent of that for that reason. And I mean, pick your favorite celebrity. You want Matthew McConaughey to read you a bedtime story? It's amazing. I've never heard the end of it, but it's lovely. Exactly. I'm still exploring and, and actually got the advice from one of my friends to check out the children's sleep stories for the simplicity that you're talking about, because some of the adult ones are very involved. Like I say, I joke about trains, but it was about a train through Norway and like the history behind it. And I got way too into it. Yeah, no, it is always the children's sleep stories. I'm a fan of the segments of Anne of Green Gables. There's the um, Little Mermaid and Frozen and, you know, the the Hans Christian Andersen version. Yeah, that's my go-to. Children's on the call now, 40 minutes or more. There we go. There's another piece of advice, folks. Check it out. But Karen, so many great resources out there. So obviously the book, The Perfect Story, I'm assuming Amazon, where do you recommend people go to get the book? Your website? Yeah, you can get it anywhere books are sold or um, you can see it on my website. That's right. It is K-A-R-E-N-E-B-E-R.com. Perfect. And I know you also mentioned, we mentioned it briefly, but there's a lot of free resources on your blog on your website as well, right? Yep, absolutely. Stuff on teaming, leadership, storytelling, all of that goodness. Amazing. Amazing. So then if a listener actually wanted to connect with you, do, what's your preferred method of communication? 
there's the blog on my website, LinkedIn. I mean, I'm I'm active on social. All of that's on the website. Just reach out. Well, Karen, cannot thank you enough for your time today. We know exactly how valuable it is, and we really appreciate you being here with us. Thank you for having me. Such a fun discussion. Thanks, Karen. All right, everyone, that does it for this episode. Please check us out at www.b2brevexec.com. Share this episode with your friends, your family, your kids, your dogs. And if you like what you hear, you can subscribe through YouTube, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. And if you really like what you hear, you could give us a five-star review on iTunes. I'm Lisa Schneer, and I'm joined by my podcast partner in crime, Carlos Noche. And until next time, we wish you nothing but the greatest successes. You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.